Well, good morning. It's good to see you all out. It's good to uh, have the opportunity to continue our discussions. Uh, if I have not had the chance to greet you yet, my name is Andrew Gass. I'm very pleased to be here with you all to spend uh, yesterday and today in your fair company. And we are very glad to have the opportunity to continue discussing the good things of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, so this is my last opportunity I'll get to uh, speak with you this morning. I just want to, again, express my appreciation for you all, express the appreciation of the elders for inviting us to be here, uh, the good Bible class that we've been a part of, the phenomenal singing. I just, oh, that was a needed balm for my soul. I was so uplifted by that, and I appreciated it so much. It is good to be here. It is good to be in the presence of the good God that we all serve. Yesterday and today, we've had the opportunity to talk about what is the gospel, what is the good news that we have come here today to live and to proclaim and to express our confidence in the truth of. And so we've talked about how in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, Mark gives us his summary of the gospel. And we've talked about how each of the four gospel writers has a particular context, a particular audience that they're seeking to talk to. And in Mark's gospel, it's short, it's punchy, he's always very brief and to the point. And so Mark sums up the life and the teaching of Jesus Christ in this one little blurb. And so we're going to look at it one more time this morning in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. That after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. And now this third part, repent and believe in the gospel. We've talked about these first two parts of this. The time is fulfilled. This is the culmination, not just of the Old Testament prophecies, but of all creation. The cosmos itself has been awaiting this moment, and that moment is the kingdom of God being at hand. God has always been at rule, but now we see in the person of Jesus Christ, the incarnate flesh and spirit of God, heaven and earth are being brought together again. The union that was always meant to be in creation is being fulfilled in his person, and that's a really big message. That is a life-changing message. It is a surprising message. It is a shocking message. But Jesus is not just looking to convey information. He's not just here to correct your understanding of the world order. There's a response that he's asking for. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning is the response. And it's in two parts here that Mark records for us. The first is going to be this word, repent. We've talked about how all of these words are words that are very familiar, I think, in our Christian language, and they're words that we hear so often, perhaps it, it has lost some of that original meaning, some of that original punch that it would have in the gospel. I want to make sure we take a little bit of time and don't just glance over what this idea of repentance is, just because it's a word we often use. Go ahead and turn over in your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Ezekiel in chapter 18. Again, you notice, I hope through all of these discussions, if nothing else, the continuity of the gospel message between Old and New Testament. There have sometimes been a mistaken idea that because we live in the New Covenant, because we live in the inauguration of the kingdom, that the Old Testament is just like a bunch of history. That's just kind of a bunch of background, and it can be helpful sometimes because it's history and because you need to know your history, you're doomed to repeat it, but it's more than that. It is our story. It is part of our covenant. It is critical information. It is the living, breathing word of God. 
absolutely as much as the New Testament it is. When Paul tells Timothy that the scriptures are God-breathed, they are inspired, remember, he's talking about the Old Testament. The New Testament's not written yet. It's not in its collated final form in Timothy. The New Testament's still a process when he's writing Timothy. He is proving Jesus through the Old Testament. He believes that is the inspired word of God, just as much as his and Peter's and the other apostles' words are inspired of the Spirit. And so in Ezekiel chapter 18, we're going to see another example of Ezekiel calling out to the uh, recalcitrant sinners of Israel, begging them not just to know what's about to happen. The point of the prophetic message was not just to show that God knew the future. The point of the prophetic message was not just to impress upon Israel, you're doomed. The point was that here's what happens if there's not a response to this message. But there was always ingrained in that message a glimmer of hope. That if you would respond to this, then there would be a different outcome. Now, because God is aware of his people, he says this is not going to happen. There is going to have to be this terrible fate that the prophets are uh, foretelling. But that glimmer of hope is always ingrained in the message of God that there is opportunity for change. And so in Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 30. God says through the prophet Ezekiel, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, each according to his conduct, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn away from all your transgressions, so that iniquity may not become a stumbling block to you. Cast away from you your transgressions, which you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. Isn't that a powerful statement in verse 32? I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies. That's not the picture that has been painted of the Lord at times. Sometimes even the church has been guilty of not painting an accurate picture of God. Sometimes you read sermons, sometimes they're from today, most of the time they're from older sources, that talk about the, the vengeful nature of God, that talk about the anger of God, that talk about all these things, and all those are biblical terms, but they portray God as this, this, this ready, eager person just ready to strike down the unholy. That he's, he's excited about it. He's ready for it. There was a famed sermon from the, the Great Awakening by Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and he used the terminology that God portrays you, he sees you as this spider that he dangles over the fiery cauldron and he would love nothing more than to pluck you in there. And brethren, that is wrong. That is unholy language. Ezekiel, an inspired prophet, says, the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies. Therefore, repent and live. The offer of repentance, the offer of change is gonna be the key word we're gonna talk about here is because God does not want to bring judgment. God does not want to bring destruction upon anybody. Notice he's not just saying upon you, Israel. He says anyone who dies. Death is an enemy. Death is wrong. Death is not a part of God's plan. It's not what he wills. It is a consequence of when we turn away from him. It is a consequence of the rebellion and the fall. He says that is not my will for you. 
And so repentance is the gracious hand of God telling you here is the reality of the cosmos. Please accept this. We'll talk about believe in a moment. Please turn away from what you're doing. That's really the heart of this idea of repentance is the idea of stopping in your tracks, stopping on the path you are on and turning a different way. Ceasing to go down the path of destruction and turn aside to the Lord. And really, when you think about the way that God has ordered the cosmos, it's really the idea of a return. That's You get that re-syllable in there. It's like a return. When we read the book of Proverbs, Proverbs describes the idea of wisdom, chokmah in the Hebrew language. And, and wisdom is not just that God's really smart. It's that God has weaved creation in such a way that creation makes sense. That there's a natural order and flow to creation. There's a natural order and flow to human life. And that that's ingrained within us. And when we live according to that, Proverbs says, that's when our life becomes better in the general part. Ecclesiastes and Job has other things to say about that. But in general, when we live in accordance with who God is, with how he has designed creation, with how he has made the world, we are in alignment with God. And that's this idea of repentance, is a returning back to that created order, a returning back to that natural harmony between God and man. Again, hear the language of heaven and earth. We're meant to be in communion. We're meant to be in unity with God. We're meant to be in alignment with God. And repentance is that act of acknowledging that we have left that. We have walked away from that. We have chosen our own way, and I can't do that anymore. I must change and I must come back to that created order. This is the consistent message of the prophets is that there must be change. And the consistent hope of the prophets is that if you do, God is merciful. God is gracious. Again, God wants this to happen. Turn over, if you will, to Zechariah, one of the minor prophets. I think he puts it in such a, a beautiful way. Zechariah, in the first chapter of that book, in chapter 1, in verse 1, it says, In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Ido, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets proclaimed, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not listen. Or give heed to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your fathers? Then they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to do to us in accordance with our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us. We get this very beautiful, very brief, but very beautiful picture of what happens when people do listen. When these children of the exile, when these children who have seen the results of when you don't repent, they say God's right. God was right with what he said. What he said through the prophets happened. Every word of what was predicted all the way back to Moses and Deuteronomy. He said if we didn't follow him, we would face ruin. We would face exile. So we're going to learn from that. We're going to turn away from the ways of our fathers 
And we're going to purpose to be in the way of the Lord. That's this idea of repentance. And so, when we turn to the New Testament, and when we hear this language, if you want to turn over to Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 3, understand that there is background to this terminology. There is an understanding in an Israelite conception of what it means to repent. That it means you have gone astray and you must return back to that good word of the Lord, the good nature of the cosmos. And so in Luke chapter 3, here's where Luke introduces John the Baptist into his gospel. In Luke chapter 3 and verse 3, it says that John the Baptist, he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so John comes onto the stage, and John in many ways does kind of come, it seems, almost out of the blue to Israel, and he begins fulfilling these prophetic oracles, and he says, I'm coming to make way and make ready the way of the Lord. And he says, but there's something that we have to do. It's not just that I've come to do something, I've come to call you to do something. That Israel, it is time to be washed, it is time to renew ourselves, it is time to be cleansed, it is time to change. Which, by the way, means that Israel, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, which is not what the Pharisees want to hear. It's not what the Sadducees want to hear. They're like, hold on, we're, we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. John says, no, we've not been doing what we're supposed to be doing. We have corrupted the good message of God. We've turned it into this horrible, horrible system. He says, in fact, you, he says in verse 7, he says, he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, not exactly the language of people you're friends with, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John says, you, you've come out here and you think, you think you know what's going on here. You think you're going to come out here and, and make a display of religious fervor? You think you're going to make a display of zeal? It's not about the words. It's not about just saying you've done it. In fact, he says it's not even just about coming out here and, and doing this ritual, doing this baptism, I'm telling you. You must bear fruits in keeping with repentance. You must demonstrate, you must tr- show in your life that there is something different going on in your life. In fact, he actually tells me exactly what to do because the people ask, they're like, well, hold on, what do, you, what do you mean by this? The crowds were questioning him in verse 10, saying, then what shall we do? Okay, you're supposed to, supposed to bear fruit. What do you mean bear fruit? He would answer and say to them, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. He who has food is to do likewise. Some tax collectors also came to be baptized. They said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, what about us? What shall we do? He said to them, do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. John says, it's about your relationships with one another. I think it's fascinating that that John doesn't delve into a deep exegesis of the scriptures. He doesn't delve into like, hey, we got to fix some of the the doctrines you've been getting wrong. We need to fix some of the, the theological ideas you have. He says you have to start treating each other like children of God. 
all of you must recognize the importance of your community, of the relationships between you. In fact, this is the very thing that Jesus himself will say. I've said Mark's gospel is a summary of his own. Luke has his own summary of what it means of Jesus's gospel. If you turn just a page over to Luke chapter four and verse 18, uh, Jesus, this is the first sermon that Jesus gives in Luke's gospel. It's not the first chronologically, but for Luke, this summarizes the theme of Jesus's message. He goes to his hometown of Nazareth. He goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. They open up the book of the prophet Isaiah to him. And here's what he reads in verse 18. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus echoes John's message at the heart of the gospel of the repentance that must be shown is not just I have to fix my personal issues, I have to fix my relationships. I have to fix my place in my community. I have to fix the way that I have been treating people, particularly, Luke emphasizes, the poor and the downtrodden and the oppressed and the outcast and the blind and the lame and the prisoner. Perhaps that is an uncomfortable message for us to hear today. That's a very countercultural message from what we hear today. We often have different language to describe such people. And yet the gospel calls us to proclaim the good news to them. The good news is not for those in power. The good news is for those who have been longing for the king, who have been longing for the freedom that Jesus brings. In fact, that's the very thing that Jesus is going to tell the Pharisees themselves. He says in Luke chapter 5 and verse 30, the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners, the outcasts? The, these, are, these are the nobodies. Why would you want to be with them? They're not righteous. We're in the synagogues. We're teaching the law. We're the ones that are actually doing good stuff, and you're hanging out here with the riffraff. What are you doing? And Jesus answered and said to them, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, the terrible irony is that the Pharisees were blind to their own physical condition. They did not understand that they themselves needed a physician. That was the, the terrible, dramatic irony of the whole story is that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the lawyers, they're the ones most in need of Jesus' healing. And yet they looked at themselves and said, I, I can't believe this guy is doing this. Do you hear what the repentance that Jesus is calling his people to do? It's the same language he's using in Mark. That when we are called to repent, when we are called to change, when we are called to walk away from the ways of the world, it is not just in a personal sense. It cannot be isolated down to an individualistic command. We do not live lives as islands. We are connected to those around us. We are connected, I hope and pray, within the kingdom. We are also connected to the rest of humanity. We are connected to our neighbor. We are corrected, connected, excuse me, to those we see on the street. We are connected to those who are less fortunate. We are connected to those that society has deemed unacceptable. 
We, as the people of God, must not be like society. We must not be like the world. We must not look at those people and think, ah, thank goodness I'm not them. Because to truly be repentant is to understand that we are all in that dire need of the king. We must identify not with the Pharisees and the rulers and the powerful. We must identify with the meek and the lowly and the oppressed because that's who Jesus came as. He did not come as the powerful. He did not come as the wealthy. He came poor and he came to be with the poor. The poor in wealth and the poor in spirit. We must have a similar mentality. When we repent, when we change, it is not just an individual repentance, and I'm not discounting any of that, but we hear a lot about that. I think we know a lot about the idea of individual repentance, of walking away, as Ezekiel says, from the transgressions of sin. We must make that step. We must remove ourselves from that. But it also means cutting ourselves away from those cultural and those political and those social ideas that perhaps we have been ingrained in from the world. If we are truly servants of the king, then we must be able to say to Caesar, no, that's not the way we do things. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. It's not like the kingdoms of the world. The church must not look like the kingdoms of this world. We must not look like the kingdoms of this world. And when we bear too much of a similarity where it becomes difficult for people to see where our political allegiance begins and where our Christianity ends, we have made a mistake. We have not borne fruits in keeping with repentance. We must turn away from the ways of the world. But that's not the only thing that Jesus is called to do. It's not just to remove the negative influences of the world. Because if you just cut yourself off from something, if you just remove something, there's still a void, there's still a gap that needs to be filled. And that's the second half of this statement. Repent and believe in the gospel. Believe in the gospel. Again, a word that I think we use a lot. It's a word that's familiar to our ears, familiar to our tongues. But oftentimes, I think believe has been watered down Believe has been flattened into this intellectual idea that this means that you assent to a set of facts and propositions, that this is a reasonable argument that has been made to you, and you have said, yes, using my faculties and using my reasons, yes, I accept the truth proposition before me. Check. Got it. I believe. Look at how Jesus uses the words believe. Turn over, if you will, to, again to the book of Mark, just a couple of chapters later in chapter 5. And I think it's no coincidence that Mark, having just said belief is at the heart of the gospel, is going to talk so much about belief. In Mark chapter 5, we have the synagogue official who has asked Jesus to heal his daughter. And in Mark chapter 5 and verse 35, it says, While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? It's too late. He took too long. But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. That's not an intellectual statement. 
He's not asking the synagogue official affirm this set of doctrines. He's saying, don't be afraid. Do not fear what has come. And what, what is he telling him, don't be afraid of? He's telling him, do not be afraid of death. Do not be afraid of the power of this world. Do not be afraid of the enemy that corrupts creation. Believe who I am. Trust in who I am. That's really the heart of this word believe. It is a trust. It is a yes, an affirmation that I believe you are the king, that I trust you are the king, that I am declaring my allegiance to you as the king, and I think you can do what you say you can do. I believe you can do. It's not an intellectual exercise. Yeah, you have to engage your mind. It's not a mindless exercise. But there's a reason that Jesus talks to the heart. There's a reason that when Jesus appeals to people, he appeals to their heart. Because it must come from there. It must come not from the intellectual reasoning that we so prize in the 21st century. It must come from that deep internal part of us that is longing for something greater than what we can see, taste, touch, feel, and smell. Our spirit cries out for this. And it is with the spirit, is within that internal part of us that we must recognize that this is true. This is what we have proclaimed. Later in the Gospel of Mark, in Mark chapter 9, a similar incident will occur where a father will come, and again, you see these, these family connections, these deep emotional times where somebody's not trying to figure out what do I think about the intellectual claim. They're trying to get somebody to help their child. In Mark, in Mark chapter 9, verse 21, Jesus goes to this father, and he asks about what's going on. In Mark 9, chapter 21, or Mark chapter 9, verse 21, he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? The boy is possessed. And he said, from childhood, it has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. You can, you can hear the emotion of the man's voice. His son, who has been racked by demonic possession, a demon that is seeking to destroy him, and he says, if you can do anything, please do something. And Jesus takes that moment and says, if, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Perhaps in the first instance, this might be one of those things like, okay, well, Jesus, you know you can help. Just, just help him. Why are, you, why are you testing him right in this moment? Why are you asking him if you can help? Why, why are you engaging in this, this word play? Listen to what the father responds. If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you deaf and mute spirit, I command you come out of him and do not enter him again. After crying out and throwing him in terrible convulsions, it came out and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. When he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not drive it out? He said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. I think it's fascinating that Jesus explains what's going on here. He's not, he's not playing some sort of nuanced game with the guy. He's not trying to draw a confession out of him before he does something. 
He says, this doesn't work if you don't believe. This doesn't work if you don't accept who I am. It's not a limitation on Jesus, by the way. He's just making a statement of reality. I came for those who believe. And this father, and I, I think perhaps the most honest response in the entire New Testament, I believe, help my unbelief. I think you are who you are to claim, and please help me in the shortcomings I have in that exercise. Belief is about trust. It's about acceptance of who Jesus is. It's about affirmation. It's about allegiance. Do you think he can do what he has claimed to do? It's not just about believing in the person of Jesus. It's not just about trusting in who he claimed to be, but it's about trusting in what he has said we can do. It's about trusting in what the Spirit has promised for us. Turn over, if you will, again to the Gospel of Luke one more final time. At the conclusion of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is going into Jerusalem. He comes back from Bethany, and he's withered a fig tree. And the disciples are, and this is a really fascinating parable here, and I'll explain it in a moment. But they pass by it, and Jesus had told the fig tree, you'll never bear fruit again. And the disciples see it, and Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered, saying to them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted you. Now this is a challenging passage sometimes, because I don't know any of us who have ever actually tried to pray to move a mountain. And I think it's because we misunderstand what's going on here. Jesus is actually using some pretty complex imagery here. A fig tree... It's a really specific type of fruit. And particularly in the prophetic image, in the prophetic corpus of images that would be used, a fig tree often represented, actually, Israel itself. And so Jesus is not just getting mad at a random piece of fruit and just blasting it with God power. He's making, actually, a very extended point to the apostles that it is not just this fig tree that has not borne fruit, but is, in fact, Israel herself. And that if Israel has not borne fruit, then as Mark had said earlier, the axe is laid at the root of the tree. And the fig tree will wither, and it will bear no more fruit ever again. Jesus is making a point again, speaking towards that coming end of Jerusalem, that coming destruction in 70 AD. And so that point is tied into what he tells the apostles. Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to not a mountain, but this mountain. Well, what mountain is he right next to if he's near Jerusalem? He's next to the Temple Mount. Jerusalem is set up upon, most people would call it a hill, but a mountain in that day was often how it was termed. The Mount of David, Mount Zion, the Temple Mount. Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted to him. Jesus is not saying, hey, disciples, if you want to try to move a mountain out of your way, you can do that. That's not the point of what he's saying. But what's going to happen just a few chapters later in Luke's second account in Acts 
Who's going to oppose Jesus' followers the most? But that mountain, that city, the leadership of that city. And perhaps when they were reflecting later upon this, the apostles understood that what he is saying is that if you say to this mountain, this people, move, be cast into the sea, face the judgment that the Lord has brought before you, it will happen. Jesus is not telling the disciples that you will have magical powers if you believe, but that if you believe in the will of the Lord, then it will happen. That if you agree, if you assent, if you trust in the Lord, the Lord will deliver you through these things. He will remove the opposition of Jerusalem out of his way, and he does it in a very dramatic way, as we see in uh, later chapters. Belief is not a magical power that if you just believe, you just think really strong and hard enough about something, something will happen. Belief is about trust and assent to the person and the power of who Jesus Christ is. That's what we're being called to, is to believe his claims, to accept who he is, and to trust that he's real, to trust that he is who he's claimed to be, to trust that he is with us now, to trust that his spirit empowers us and fills us to do the ministry we've been called to do, to trust that he is coming back to trust that death no more holds over any sway over us, to trust that in that final day we will be raised as he has been raised. It is an exercise in trust. And that exercise in trust compels us and it calls us to learn more about him. We want to study more about him. We want to become greater students of his will, to become greater students of his word. But the very core of the response to the gospel is ultimately trust. It is not an exercise in reason. It is not an exercise in rationality. It's not an exercise in scientifically checking every one of the claims and understanding them from a scientific perspective. It is an episode of faith and trust in the person of Jesus Christ. This is the heart of the gospel. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. I hope this conveys to you the power of what we proclaim. I hope it has reminded you of what we proclaim. This cannot be something we just do today and tomorrow we forget about it. This cannot just be something that we do for a few hours on Sunday and maybe an hour on Wednesday. This must be the very core manifesto of our life. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is close, is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the call we take up daily. This is the life we have chosen to live. Heaven help us if we fall short in any capacity. Not because it's up to us to save ourselves. But can you imagine being that ungrateful servant who when the Lord returns, he says, I, I gave you the truth. You were, you were privileged to be born in a time where you could know me. And what did you do with it? Sad. Buried in the field. I kept it safe. It was, you know, it's back there, but I didn't really do anything with it. I can't imagine facing that disappointment. I cannot imagine seeing the hurt in my Lord's eyes. I hope and pray that we take this seriously. I hope and pray that we will find the joy of service. That we will see the good fruit that comes out of this. 
I pray this continues to be a wonderful outpost of the kingdom that does the good work we've been called to do. If this is the first time you are hearing of this gospel, if this is perhaps a time where you now understand better what has been offered, not what required, but what has been extended freely as a gift, as a grace, as a mercy from the God of the universe. If there is something that you need to do in that response, if you need to repent and believe, if you need to proclaim your allegiance to the Lord to identify yourself with him in baptism, if there is anything that we can do in helping to do that, we as the fellow soldiers of the kingdom would love to do so while we stand and while we sing.